Hello there. Thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd Fink. This episode is number 48, Seek Elegance, Not Luxury. And it was recorded at a live talk early in the year. And it was the last in-person Kind Mind gathering at the Hyatt Regency in Lyle, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. And listening back when I was editing and preparing this episode, it's kind of amazing to hear the sound of an audience or a group of people, the togetherness. It's been months and months now since we've been able to have that kind of fellowship. I hope at some point we'll be able to return to in-person meetings, but even just hearing the sound of it is really special and brings gratitude into my awareness. And I look forward to, to sharing the sounds even with you. And We're heading into a difficult period as uh, coronavirus cases are surging across the country. We need kindness and we need to support each other any way we can virtually. So I hope that you may be able to connect either tomorrow, if you hear this in time, I am speaking as a guest at Speakeasy Spiritual Community on Zoom at 10.30 a.m. Central Time. You can find uh, information about this and the next Kind Mind gathering, which is also virtual on Tuesday, November 24th at 7 p.m. on my website, michaeltodfink.com forward slash events. And again, I want to thank those of you who are supporting this podcast via Patreon. This episode will have a bonus section, which includes question and answers from this talk, uh, only for those who are supporting the podcast on Patreon at the first tier or higher. So if you would like to hear that part and be involved in that way, I would really appreciate it. It makes all the difference in my ability to be able to continue this work and keep it free from advertising and commercialization so we can just get right down to the business of exploring these topics together. And this one is about elegance. Oftentimes, elegance is conflated with extravagance or opulence. Now, there is a relationship insofar as all three of those involve style. But those other two are meretricious, whereas elegance is actually something akin to their inverse. In elegance, the outward style is simple, but behind the appearance lies something powerful and substantive. In nature, think of the uncomplicated beauty of falling snow. At a glance, it's quite plain in form and color, and yet upon closer inspection, one finds countless unique snowflake designs containing exquisite symmetrical patterns. The same can be true of a forest from afar, or the ocean, or the desert, and the depth of life and meaning within. So seeking elegance is not synonymous with seeking luxury. And encounters with elegance can be difficult to put into words. In other disciplines like physics, great scientists have merely suggested, quote, you know it when you see it. Like in famous equations, such as E equals MC squared or F equals MA, a few common letters point to far-reaching theories of special relativity and the laws of motion. 
fMRI studies of the brains of mathematicians reveal activation in the same regions associated with the pleasure of viewing a beautiful painting. When their eyes are shown formulas that are simple but powerful and self-reported as elegant. In life, perhaps you know it when you feel it. So this talk explores the way of elegance in Japanese. This is called furyu, F-U-R-Y-U, which is two words, wind and stream, because the wind is subtle and the stream represents being in the flow of life. So it has this spiritual quality. And its roots in English are derived from French. Elegant is a French word. And prior to that, it has Latin origins. It's how we get the word elect, actually, or election. Both come from the Latin word eligere, which meant to choose. And to choose with care. So I won't get into my thoughts about politics at this time. But I just wanted to point out that it's an interesting coincidence that there's that uh, synchronicity here. And I talk about two poets that remind me of elegance. And in this intro, I wanted to highlight one other mystic by the name of Rabia of Basra, Iraq, born in the early 8th century. An extraordinary Sufi mystic, Rabia meant fourth because she was the fourth child of very poor parents, but noble and pious parents. And Rabia immediately became inspired by devotion and asceticism. And there's some debate about whether or not she's a icon of, of the feminist movement. And I don't purport to know enough about feminist philosophy, but I did study it a little bit at the University College of Dublin in Ireland. But I think one of the reasons why Rabia's contribution to culture and spirituality is a bit mysterious is because she didn't make tangible offerings, meaning she didn't write anything, it didn't leave us any literature. But like I often point to in these podcast episodes, elegance and spiritual life has so much more to do with what doesn't happen, as described in the Via Negativa of Italy or Neti Neti in Indian philosophy. And as I review the little that is known about Rabia, I see another meaning for her name, fourth, and how it could be meaningful in the pursuit of equality, but definitely meaningful in terms of mystic tradition. Rabia's parents died when she was very young, and then she was kidnapped and sold into slavery. But the legend goes that she would pray every night after completing her chores, and the master of the household saw her one evening in prayer, could hear her devotional, sorrowful cries to the Supreme Lord, and he saw a brilliant light enveloping her, and he became fearful, became self-conscious, 
what kind of man am I to enslave a saint and make her serve me? In the morning, he summoned her, offered a place for her to stay there, and and pledged to serve her and her work as a holy person, but also said that she, she could be completely free as well. And so she chose freedom. And he released her from the bonds of slavery, and she became a great mystic of Basra. Over the coming years, many men pursued her hand in marriage, but she refused them all, expressing to each that she had already used up all her time. Her life was already completely full with devotion and prayer and asceticism. And then the last part of the story that's worth noting is that the, the highest cleric, Hassan of Basra, became very fond of Rabia and considered himself a child in her company, a child spiritually, recognizing her mastery of life. And supposedly he asked her once uh, how she realized the secret of life. And Rabia elegantly replied, You know of the how. I know of the howless. Which again speaks to revelation as opposed to something that is acquired in spiritual life. And one of these times in the visit, she was holding two pots, one with fire and one with ashes. And she explained that at least in her mind, she had burned all of the, the riches in heaven and put out the fires of hell, meaning her realization and intoxication with divine love has nothing to do with fear of being punished and nothing to do with desire for reward. And in this way, she communicated to Hassan that she had transcended the bonds of religion and duality. So now, looking back on this story, we see four liberations for Rabia. And they do relate to institutions that have been ruled by men. The household, the authority of the, the master, the institution of marriage, especially at that time, and the church. So Rabia stands unique among all saints. Because of that, she's remembered. Many people think of elegance and, and think of fashion, but even Coco Chanel said elegance is refusal. Giorgio Armani said elegance isn't about being noticed, but being remembered. And so I wanted to take a little time to remember that great mystic and her elegant influence on the way to truth. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Once again, thank you for your support. Thank you for sharing with friends and family and leaving reviews and so on. Please visit me on social media at Michael Todd Fink on Facebook or Instagram. Please visit the website. Please consider becoming a member on Patreon and accessing the Kind Mind Studio. And most of all, stay safe. 
sending you my best wishes and kindness during these difficult times and this dark winter ahead. Hope to see you soon. Take care. Tonight is elegance, and it reminds me of a story about a young shepherd boy who's tending some sheep in the pasture, and he spots a beautiful flower all alone, no other flowers around it. And he looks down, and it's the most beautiful flower he's ever seen. So he scoops it up into his two hands, brings it close to his face to drink in the beauty. He sees the colors and smells the scent and notices the symmetry. Then all of a sudden, in the background, he hears the sound of rocks ripping apart. So he turns to look at the nearby mountain and it's opening up and inside, the light from the sun is hitting and revealing that there's a cave full of jewels and precious metals. So he goes inside and sets down the flower and starts to load up on all these jewels. Fills his hands and pockets and holding a whole bunch in his shirt and his tunic. But then he hears a voice in the mountain saying, don't forget the best. So he looks around, grabs some more, and he's about to leave. And once again, he hears that voice saying, don't forget the best. So he thinks, I must have, I must have missed something. Goes back in one more time, can't really see anything more special than what he already has, but he stuffs a few more things and then he <laughs> escapes out. And behind him, the mountain closes. Then he hears a voice saying, you forgot the best. The best was the flower. The flower was the key to the mountain cave. And that's the end of the story. And I think it is a good symbol for what matters. And what matters is not always the, the shiny thing but the simple thing. Elegance is not easy to define. Some mathematicians have said that you just know it when you see it. I say you know it in life when you feel it. But I read a book recently called The Pursuit of Elegance, and that author also has another book that I'll reference a few times called The Elegant Solution, and I think he gives a really nice definition. Elegance is when something unusually simple meets surprisingly powerful. And I've reflected on, on these two ideas a little bit, simplicity and power, because it's not simplicity for simplicity's sake. And also this gets conflated with opulence or extravagance or luxury. But unlike those, elegance is sort of the inverse in extravagance or opulence, there is more than is needed and it is in a decorative way, but behind that is there's not always a lot of substance or a lot of depth of meaning. On the flip side, elegance isn't very shiny necessarily. It's, it's actually quite simple, but it has some principles behind that simplicity and it leads into something deeper. And although we may have these other associations with elegance, there have been spiritual traditions around the world that have pursued elegance over luxury 
as a way towards understanding the nature of life and the universe. So a few things I'd like to share with you. Let me start by saying that there's got to be some reason that it's even worth investigating this or pursuing this. And so I looked at a study of perception of a few things that sometimes get conflated or are in proximity to elegance, beauty and sexual attraction. And so there was an interesting social psychology study done where they asked a large group of participants about different age groups and how likely it would be that they would be perceived as beautiful, as sexy, as elegant. And the results are what you might imagine. Sexiness is definitely skewed toward youth. Beauty is a little bit skewed in that direction, but it continues on beyond sexiness. And then elegance peaks around 50 to 60, but doesn't completely disappear into older age, whereas the other two rapidly decline. Now, I think this matters because sometimes if we conflate elegance with these other two, we might be chasing something that's not worthwhile. And I thought about this at the very beginning of my musical career and with my bandmates. We sat down and we really talked about what would we want to leave? Because everything we create and release, maybe for all time for, or for as long as people are listening to music. It's surprising to me to see how innovation sometimes limits the artist. I think a very simple example is in the 80s. There's some great music in the 80s, but we'll always know it's from the 80s. <laughs> so, so we started with acoustic instruments because we thought acoustic instruments have existed for all time that there's been music the whole time. And so we were in pursuit of something timeless. And also, I remember sitting with my brother and sa saying to each other, we want to play a kind of music that we can age with, that we can grow old with. We don't want to rely just on our youthful angst and energy. And although we, you know, sometimes jumped off stages and speakers and stuff like that, <laughs> that wasn't the essence of what we were doing. Anyways, I want to bring your attention to a few things that I think are relevant with simplicity and power that sometimes are overlooked because it's not simplicity for simplicity's sake. So the first one is subtraction. We arrive at simplicity sometimes because things are complicated and we need to uncomplicate them or declutter. And this was brought up by this author, Matthew May, in his book, The Elegant Solution. He used to work for Toyota. And he started realizing that the philosophy of Toyota included some Japanese wisdom of what not to do. People think in business all the time, what should we do? What should we tell people to do? What ought our core values be? And he was asked to solve a problem at a particular plant in Fremont, California. It had closed in like 1983 because the absenteeism was getting so high and the productivity was getting so low. I think 20% of the workers weren't showing up for work on any kind of consistent basis. So he went in and instead of thinking about what to do to solve the problem, he thought about what not to do. So he looked at the job descriptions for the workers 
and there was a hundred points, a hundred expectations. So he removed them all and left two. Respect each other and constantly improve. That was it. And then told the people, interpret it however you want. And after two years, the absenteeism went from, and they brought in the same union workers back to the plant after it closed. So it wasn't a new team. And then after a couple years, the absenteeism went from 20% to 3%. And they became one of the best producing plants in the world, all because of taking something away. And I tried to bring this philosophy to the groups that I work with. I tell my teams, my bosses, the nonprofits that I'm a part of, that less is more oftentimes. And if people feel respected, they're motivated to do their best. If they feel trusted, they're motivated to use their talent. Because I think ultimately people want to be creative and they want to find meaning in their work. I think it's a basic need uh, or one of the needs on Maslow's pyramid. I think he may describe it a little bit differently, but I would describe it as freedom of expression and freedom to be creative and find meaning in work. And when you have too many rules for how to do the work, then people no longer feel creative and they don't take ownership over the work. This also was, he pointed out this was also true with, um, with a case study known now as the Montana Paradox. In Montana, they removed the speed limit some years back. And after that, over the next couple of years, the auto fatalities declined by like 50% or something like that. But after some time, new administrations were looking at this and saying, we can't have no speed limit, we gotta have some speed limit. And as soon as they reinstated the national average for the speed limit on their freeways, the fatalities went up again. When they took away the speed limit, they also took away something out of the mind that's cumbersome on the road. And when there's a speed limit, people tend to think, I have to drive there, which actually takes away some of your attention because you have to keep looking at the speedometer, looking at the road, looking at the speedometer, and it actually led to more fatalities. When that burden was removed, people were free to drive as they saw fit in the conditions on the road. Now you might say, well, wouldn't people just drive any speed and create act? Well, don't those people drive that fast anyway? <laughs> you know, so the same is also true to some extent when uh, better brakes are installed or when we get our brakes replaced, we then tend to drive a little bit more risky than we would when we know the brakes are really weak. We're very aware, we're very present and the, the risk of an accident actually goes down in most cases. Oh, so all this is humorous to me, but another way to get to simplicity could be restraint, which means there is the capacity to do more, but something is left undone purposefully. And in music, I, I tend to think of this in a few composers that come to my mind, but one that stands out is Thelonious Monk, who was around during Miles Davis's time and some of the other great artists in bebop and jazz fusion. And he was coming at a time where people were playing a lot of notes. Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Coltrane. And he tended to play much more sparsely. 
but he had a way of keeping the melody always present in his solos. He would hold down a lot of keys and then he would remove fingers and what you didn't hear shaped your experience. Your mind started to fill in the gaps in the space, but it was so unusual and that's why it was elegant because it was so simple and yet it was so intelligent. There's one particular solo that I would encourage you to listen to. I think it's on Spotify. It's a cover of Gershwin's The Man I Love. And he's playing with Miles Davis and a few other famous artists at that time. And he's taking a solo and it gets so sparse that even Miles Davis gets uncomfortable with that amount of space. And he starts to jump in to sort of nudge him. Come on, play something. And that's how you know he was really comfortable in that space. He could really restrain himself. But there is something elegant about being able to hold back. And, and there are moments in that solo where he lets it fly just a little bit. So you know he's not holding back because he's not capable. And in this way, it, it is simple and yet it's very powerful. Uh, they do it twice because Miles Davis was so frustrated, I think. <laughs> And both are, both are out there. You can listen to both solos. It's fascinating to me because Miles Davis is the father of cool, birth of the cool, which means he was already playing a little bit more sparsely than his predecessors and his contemporaries. So even he was feeling uncomfortable. But it's really something special to hear how much he just let it breathe. And it's almost like he let the rhythm section just be out there, just you know, trying to keep it going. So that's, that comes to my mind when I think of restraint. And then symmetry. Symmetry is a way to notice the simplicity of nature in a deeper way. If you look closely at like a tree, you'll see that there is a pattern of fractals within the tree, which means you can take the tree apart in some way and still have the whole. If you remove a branch and you look carefully at it, you'll see the whole tree. Same is true for clouds and waves and branches of all kinds and, and bushes of all kinds. When you, when you are holding um, a head of broccoli, if you look carefully into it and you start pulling the pieces apart to cook, it looks like the whole head of broccoli. So it's another fractal. Symmetry is thought to be a, an important feature of beauty, of what we find beautiful, like in faces. But here's something that I think will be really interesting to notice in the way of elegance. Just pay attention as you look at life, as you look at people, as you look at nature, that the kind of symmetry that is found everywhere is bilateral symmetry. Human being cut in half is not symmetrical. Down the middle, symmetrical. Same with a house, same with a car, same with a tree. Same with so many things. Maybe it's because the earth and the sky are not symmetrical. But it's just something interesting to notice. And when you look closely at it, you might find that you're very present in that moment and very aware and very mindful. And then the last feature of simplicity that comes to my mind is refinement. So it's not just being simple so that you can get things uncomplicated and that's the end. To me, refinement means that it's incomplete, sort of like what I talk about in Wabi Sabi. For me, 
bringing refinement and simplicity to life is about looking at the five senses, being mindful of the five senses, and taking them on a journey to better and better taste. Not just taste with the tongue, but taste with the eyes and all of it. In the etymology of elegant, its origins are in Latin and French, and the word eligere, which meant to choose, to select, which is why it's close to election. Elegance and election have share some, some history. But to choose in a tasteful way, and that's why elegance has evolved to mean one's style. They have something to do with style, but how does this refinement work? For me, once when I was in college, I tried to cut out all meat and become a vegetarian overnight. And it didn't go so well. I found myself just miserable and just having, going out to eat and just having the burger minus the burger. <laughs> That's how it was in the 90s. So it's like, they're like, just, so just a tomato and a piece of lettuce? You have that and fries. <laughs> and, uh, and then I realized something, that I was just trying to subtract, and sometimes subtraction alone doesn't work to get the simplicity you want, the refinement that you want. So instead, I started treating my diet like a bonsai tree. I just delicately moved things around over the next five years. And in that way, I wasn't just jumping to veganism or vegetarianism. I was trying to paint something with my life. I was trying to make a statue like Michelangelo by chipping away. And I listened to my body. I didn't do anything because it was a particular kind of diet and I kept it fluid. And it's still, it's, I still don't call myself a vegan or plant-based person because I don't know what I'm gonna eat next. It might change and I want it to change because I feel like I'm in the way of elegance. I want my choice to get better and better and better based on wisdom and also based on what my body is communicating to me. So it happened like this. One day I started to listen to the way I felt after certain foods and then I would notice, ah, I don't really feel my best when I have this particular beef or whatever. So reduce reduce and then no I don't I lost the taste for it then in that trimming in that shedding and then I would notice oh I don't really like this other thing it doesn't quite give me the energy I want so trim trim but here's the interesting thing about it when people talk about the way I eat now they often tell me I could never go without X Y and Z you know I could never go without cheese or something like that what I find interesting when I think of my own journey through the refinement of taste, that when I thought I was free and just ate anything or could eat anything, my diet was actually not very diverse. When I evolved it or refined it, I started to eat all different kinds of things, even though it's all within the framework of simplicity. I never had hummus until I was in college. I never had Middle Eastern food. There was no Middle Eastern food in the small town that I was in. So I started to explore different cultures and different cuisines and what could be done with less. 
And I don't know that that would have ever happened if I wasn't engaged in that pursuit of elegance, the pursuit of choice. I think that applies to everything. In music, it happened for me as well. I don't play music nearly as much as I used to, and people often ask me, don't you miss playing music? Don't you want to be musical again? And I feel that I'm actually more musical than I was before. It's just subtler. And I can hear sounds all the time. So I'm always with music, whether I'm doing it what feels like the crude way of actually putting sound out. My teacher told me, any sound is a friction. Keep that in mind, you know. <laughs> Once you speak, it's creating friction with the air. So the purest communication or the most loving communication probably happens in silence. So anyways, the, my taste with the ear started to evolve and I encouraged it along. I noticed that it's the same with food. And I, in, in my work in the hospitals, I also noticed that people listen to really, really loud, aggressive music because it gets louder than their own thoughts. The thoughts are so loud, the racing thoughts are so burdensome that the loud, aggressive music can sometimes win. And I can understand that. But in the way of elegance, in the pursuit of elegance, as you start to refine this, it doesn't need to be as loud. I think the same is true with relationships, with intimacy, with family. When you let go of that loudness, you can start to notice more and more things. The same with everything and all, all the five senses. So experiment with that and see what where you can take your senses and how you can actually taste and feel and see more by simplifying, by way of refinement. On the other side of this, we have power. And I think the power ultimately is in the beauty or the allure of whatever that thing or person or art form is. So like a diamond is a good example. The diamond is very simple. It's just carbon and oxygen. But even after all that pressure to create the diamond, still, before the jeweler can sell it, a little more has to be trimmed. And it's mostly transparent, and then it just refracts light, and we find it to be very alluring, but it's, it's simple. Then, the, then I think it needs to be useful to some extent. So the way I apply this to making choices for my life is I feel like it's good to have beautiful things, but less things. And if they're useful, then it's not wasteful. If you know that you're not going to use it, why burden your life with it? There's so many things in drawers and closets and we think one day I may need this. And if you've ever been into some Zen meditation spaces. In those spaces, this is particularly true of Zen, that there's less. And sometimes it's all white or it's all wood, the floor is wood, and there's nothing there. And in Taoism, there's a verse in the Tao Te Ching that we build walls, we build houses, we build bowls and containers, but it's the space that we use. So when we keep filling up that space unnecessarily, then you actually lose the, the flow, the usefulness of life.
Then the next one is in, enduring. So obviously things that are just used once and discarded probably can't be elegant. And in this wasteful culture that we have where everything is quick and fast and discarded, even people are almost discarded because with apps to meet people, it's like, well, I got a hundred more people <laughs> to meet after this one. For me, it seems like meeting people through apps sometimes is like an audition, an audition for a starring role in your life. <laughs> and I was talking with a group of people about this and they were saying, they were tell explaining what ghosting was to me. <laughs> and I was saying, I think that sounds pretty useful, at least in the beginning, right? Like, because what, how much, they're saying, and some people are saying, no, you can't ghost people after like two dates or something like that. And I'm thinking, well, then what are you supposed to do? Like send, <laughs> send a rejection notice? <laughs> we had, this was a very difficult decision. <laughs> you know? We had so many applications. <laughs> we regret to inform you. <laughs> Uh, but please feel free to apply again in six months. <laughs> and then creative. When I bring all these together in my mind, I don't know a lot about all the other art forms. Like I'm not as knowledgeable of dance and painting, but I think of poetry as elegant, certain kinds of poetry. And two figures come to my mind that that bring all this together, this elegance. And they arrive at this elegant place in their career from two different places. So the first one is the Shakespeare of India, Kalidas. He lived in fourth or fifth century BC, but his story is funny. And because it's so long ago, it's probably mostly mythology. But he was um, a cowherd and not very bright, not educated at all. And during that time, the king had a daughter, a princess, and it was time for her to get married. So he asked her what her stipulations were, and she said, I want to marry somebody who's smarter than me. She was a scholar. So she arranged for a series of debates to do a battle of wits with the wise people of that time in that region. And so the king arranged for all these wise scholars to come debate his daughter, but she always beat them and said, none of them are as smart as me, so I'm, I won't marry any of them. They felt insulted by this, so they got together, all these wise men, and tried to find a way to get revenge on the princess. So they decided, we'll find a foolish person, a stupid person, and will convince her that he's smart. And when she marries him, she'll have to live the rest of her life with a dimwit. And so they go searching around and then they spot Kalidas. And they know he's the right man for the job because he's sawing a branch that he's sitting on. <laughs> Here's the right man for the job. So after he falls, they say, hey, young man, how would you like to marry a princess and have no worries for the rest of your life? He says, yeah, but why would a princess marry me? He said, don't worry about that. We'll tell you what to do. So this princess wants somebody that's smarter than her. And he said, but I'm not, I'm not smart. And they said, okay, don't worry about that either. Here's what you do. 
don't say anything. We'll tell the princess that you're a wise sage observing silence and that you only communicate in gestures, hand gestures. So she'll ask you questions or she'll debate with you and we'll interpret your gestures for you. And because it'll be all of us together, we'll be able to outsmart the princess and then she'll take your hand in marriage. So he agrees. They come to the uh, palace. The princess is excited because she hears that the king has finally arranged for somebody who can best her in this battle of intelligence. So the wise men explained to her, look, this is a wise sage we found for you, but he doesn't speak right now. He's observing silence. However, he will answer your questions or he will communicate with you through hand gestures and will interpret those for you. So the princess raises one finger to Kalidas. In her mind, she's indicating that there's one God and wants to see what he'll say. He looks at that. Kalidas says, I can't believe this princess is threatening to poke my eye out. <laughs> so he controls, his, he tries to restrain himself. He wants to shout at her, but he raises two fingers to indicate, if you poke my eye, I'll poke both your eyes out. <laughs> so the princess looks over to the wise man and says, I said that God is one. And the wise man said, yes, he, he understands that, but the one manifests as two, duality, male, female, yin, yang, and so on, body and soul, or God and goddess, masculine and feminine. So she's impressed Then she goes back and she holds up three fingers to indicate this duality is covered up by Maya or the illusory power which has three qualities. We've talked about them in a different class or a different gathering. But those three qualities are known as gunas in Indian philosophy. The gunas are like activity, calmness, and I guess you could describe it as dullness. And so you see that in nature, you see that in the human being. Sometimes the mind is dull, sometimes it's active, sometimes it's peaceful. It tends to follow the cycles of nature in the morning and in the evening, the mind is calmer, it's more active during the day, and then it gets a little bit duller at night when we're sleeping. And you'll see all of these happen in nature and in seasons and so on. And so she's saying, those three gunas block the perception of truth. He sees the three fingers say, saying to himself, she's gonna poke both my eyes out and stab my ear. <laughs> so he holds up four fingers. You do that, I'll do all four. And then she goes to the wise men. So I told them the three gunas prevent the perception of truth. And they said, yes, but he's telling you that in the four Vedas, <laughs> that the instructions for overcoming the three gunas to perceive truth and in the Upanishads of the four Vedas, you can find the way to liberation. She's impressed again. So she comes back and holds up her palm all five fingers to indicate the five senses which need to be refined in elegance. The five senses distract us and temptations pull us away from the pursuit as instructed in the four Vedas. So Kalidas is saying, I can't believe she's going to slap me. <laughs> so he makes a fist. 
you slap me, I'll punch you. <laughs> He's pretty violent, <laughs> pretty aggressive. And so she tells the wise man, I told him that the five senses are, need to be overcome. They're the obstacles to following the truth in the Vedas. So the wise men say, yes, he acknowledges that, but he made a fist because he's saying when the five senses are refined and brought under one's control, then one can make their way to truth. So she's impressed and she says, okay, this is, this is the man for me. And they get married and on their honeymoon, Kalidas can't help but say some things. <laughs> And as soon as she hears him speak, she's like, what? I don't know what he said, I don't remember. But it was enough to convince her that this was not, that she was tricked. So she kicks him out of the, of the suite, of the honeymoon suite, and says, I can't stay married to you. And now Kalidas is depressed because he had everything with this princess. He thought he had the perfect life, and now he has nothing again. So because he was in this exalted state and was reduced back down to his low caste, he decides to end his life. And he goes to the river and he's about to plunge himself into the river when supposedly in the legend, the mythical goddess Saraswati, the goddess of knowledge and poetry and music, appears on this river on a swan and he knows who she is because he's worshipped these deities before. And he offers his tongue to the goddess. He says, if you can transform me into an elegant man, I'll give you my tongue. And he's about, he pulls out a dagger and he's about to cut the tongue off when she stops him. And she blesses him and says, no, your sincerity is enough, but go do some penance with it. A particular guru so he makes his way to the hermitage of a master and he does some penance and he spends long time in meditation and he emerges as this poet sage and he starts writing all these great epics of India and all these poems and eventually the princess rediscovers him and his greatness and they reconcile and they become husband and wife again. But he had to go through a lot to get there. And I, I think of this story as paralleled with a <coughs> Japanese poet named Basho, Matsuo Basho, in the 17th century. He didn't have a long life, maybe 50 years. I think more is understood about him because it wasn't as long ago as Kalidas. But in contrast to Kalidas, Basho was very skilled at writing at a very early age and he was recognized by the elite in that part of Japan at the time and he started to be, gain the favor of different leaders and people in the aristocracy. However, there wasn't much depth behind what he was writing if I understand his life correctly. And he gradually grew more and more depressed until he took to Zen Buddhism. And then his poetry became more and more refined. And he's now known as the grandfather of the haiku. The haiku simply is 
three parts, two scenes, and one conclusion. So one of the most famous poems of Basho's and of all of Japanese haiku is an ancient pond, a frog jumps in, the splash of water. And all of his poems are so simple like this. And when I first discovered haiku poetry, I'm like, this is nothing. <laughs> this is like something a child would write. But as I looked at it again and again, I started to realize that behind the simplicity is something so profound. The profound quality of Basho's poetry, Zen poetry, is that there's no I-ness in it. He's never saying, I was looking at a pond one day, I watched the frog jump in. It's just what is. And if you read these again and again, it's like he's not trying to say anything. In fact, it's prob he probably feels as though the experience is very degraded once he wrote those three lines down. But when you see this, if you contemplate it, you start to do it yourself. You start to look at the next experience and you can see that it's a haiku. And if you remove the self and you just perceive, you're just awareness, then you start to tap into something that is worth everything. And at the end of Basho's life, he started to travel alone. And one of his final poems is called uh, Autumn Eve. It's simply, along this road goes no one this Autumn Eve. And in that, those simple three lines, he's pointing to the reality of aloneness. We're born alone, we go alone. The Autumn Eve is a symbol of death. And even though we connect with each other along the road, if you follow any one life from point A to point B, no one else will take that path. Right? Your life path is only for you. Just looking at that deeply, and you can see there's two sides to it. There's just the very natural aspect of a road and autumn, but the road is also the symbol of life, and the eve is the twilight of life. What was, I think, special about Basho's poetry in this, these haiku is that it wasn't always something that we would think of as wonderful. It just was what was happening. And so there's this one that stands out, it's humorous. So on one of these trips, he often found himself in struggle. He would travel alone, life was difficult in the 1600s. So this one, when he was staying at some random hut, is fleas and lice biting, awake all night, a horse pissing close to my ear. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> but what is meaningful about this is that there's still no I. There's, he's not complaining. This is what's happening. Fleas and lice biting, awake all night, a horse pissing close to my ear. Now we understand that what that would, how that would make us feel and we can impose I-ness onto it, but he's still just doing the same thing he was doing with the pond and the other, the other poems. And so he even said later to his students, you don't need to read my other poetry. It doesn't have this kind of 
Zen spirit. Tolstoy also said similar things. He, in his uh, essay, What is Art? He talks about the difference between real art and counterfeit art. And Tolstoy has a very aggressive way of talking about this. It sometimes rubs me the wrong way. But I get his point in all this. And sometimes he's a little bit rigid, I think, with his Christian morality uh, around his philosophy. But he makes some really good points. He, he once said something like, and I think it speaks to elegance, that real art is simple. It's peasant art. It can't be taught. Once it's taught, you're teaching somebody how other people did it, which then strips it of its originality. So that's, that's a little bit strong. And then he describes counterfeit art like a prostitute. He says counterfeit art like a prostitute is always decked out. Whereas when people are really in love, they're just content to be plain with themselves because they know behind the plainness is depth of feeling. So I, I, I see some connections there. And then there's a poem by Kalidas that I wanted to share with you. So he didn't write haiku, but he wrote plays and dramas and a lot of longer pieces, but they still had the same, some of them had the same simplicity of Basho. This one's called Look to Today. Look to this day, for yesterday is but a dream and tomorrow is only a vision. Today well lived makes every yesterday a dream of happiness and every tomorrow a vision of hope. Look well, therefore, to this day, such is the salutation to the ever new dawn. We often think about at the beginning of the year, what do I want to do this year? What do I want to manifest? Law of attraction, what do I want to add to my life? It would be helpful, I think, to start the year or start the month or start tomorrow with what do I want to stop doing? What do I want to trim? And see what is revealed that way. Also, you can do, do some thought experiments like if I, only had, if I only had 10 years to live and fear wasn't an obstacle and money wasn't an obstacle, what would I stop doing? Not what would I do? Because people always say, what would you do with a million dollars? What would, you know, what would you do? What's on your bucket list? But what will you strip away? Just to bring it all together, I think we can pursue elegance. And that's not the same as pursuing luxury or all the other things. So the way of elegance is a way. So I brought up all these different points of view, but if it appeals to you or if it's valuable to you, then you can pursue that or integrate that into whatever your spirituality may be. If the mind wanders, when you're aware of its wandering, choose again. As you breathe, Notice the haiku of breathing. Breathing in, breathing out, life continues.